Welcome to the Vell Institute podcast. I'm your humble servant and host, Terry Weaver. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit vellinstitute.org. That's V-E-L institute.org to help us make an impact. Well, I'm excited to introduce our next Vell Institute podcast guest, Mr. Thomas Bolsch. He's a graduate of Pace University in New York, where he earned a Bachelor of Business Administration with an emphasis in management. After graduation, Mr. Bolsch was selected for a position with the United States Secret Service. After entering into service in 1989, Tom spent 25 years with the Secret Service, and it allowed him to personally protect and serve four sitting U.S. presidents, to include President George Herbert Walker Bush, President Bill Clinton, President George Bush, and President Obama. After retirement, Tom raised capital and founded Saddle River Range, a 33,000-square-foot gun range that's been compared to a country club. Tom is an innovator and a servant leader in business and in the community. I'm excited about this podcast because in it, we got to talk about some really neat times in our history, times like uh, no other, when, when our country was attacked by terrorists. And it really touches a nerve for both of us because at the time I was in the military, I served overseas uh, during that war. Tom protected the president. It was a really uh, special time for both of us, and it's neat to dive into it. I hope you really enjoy this episode. There's a lot that we cover. Thanks for listening. Well, Tom, thanks for meeting up with us and doing this podcast. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, Sometimes we don't start with the, bi- the, the, the biographical stuff, the linear stuff, but you did 25 years in the Secret Service. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, an honor. Uh, it was my pleasure doing it. I, I had a ball. It uh, really was a lot of fun. Got to see, you know, stuff that 99% of this country never gets to see. So um, I loved it. Did a lot of traveling. Went to some pretty exotic places and got to see some... Uh, pretty incredible stuff and meet some incredible people. Yeah. I'm curious about the, um, you spent 25 years in the secret service protecting our commander in chiefs, AKA Mm -hmm. our presidents. Mm -hmm. Some people don't know the commander in chiefs term. Um, can you give us a couple highlights of your career? Yeah. High level stuff. Uh, well, well, I'll, I'll start from the beginning. I mean, I started under George Herbert Walker Bush's administration, um, in 1989, I was fortunate to be a young officer and be assigned to the White House. Uh, they had just uh, moved in at the time. They moved in in January. And uh, I spent three and a half years there with him and, and the family. And uh, I worked my way up through the ranks there uh, as an officer and became a uh, member of the emergency response team there. It's like a SWAT team at the White House. So I enjoyed doing that. The first Gulf War was going on at the time. So that got a little hairy at times with the protests and everything going on. And then I was selected to be a special agent. And they, um, in Secret Service fashion, they love to transfer us. So I went to the Washington field office. Then I was transferred to the New York field office. 
And up there, you do uh, mostly investigations, counterfeiting, credit card fraud, that kind of stuff, threats against the president. But there's a lot of protection that comes up to uh, New York, which you can well imagine. All the heads of states of these countries and the president and vice president are always coming in at least once or twice a month. Uh, because the Secret Service, most people don't know, they also protect heads of state and heads of government uh, for foreign countries. So anytime they came into New York, we would have to provide protection for them. Uh, did about eight years up there and then was fortunate enough to be selected for the president's detail. So I went down and did uh, the last two of President Clinton and the first three years of President uh, George W. Bush. Uh, from there, I went to our training division and loved that. Loved being an instructor, loved teaching the uh, new agents, going to the president's detail about tactics and protection and, and uh, weapon handling. And uh, then my last stop was to come out to Houston. They transferred me to Houston. And I did five years in the Houston field office, and I retired about four and a half years ago. Uh, but we loved it here, and that's why we stayed. Well, thanks for all the service. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, lots of travel, as I mentioned, comes with that. Uh, uh, probably the busiest travel time I ever spent was President Clinton's, uh, basically his farewell tour when he was getting out of office, his last eight to ten months, all he did was travel and go to different countries. And uh, so I was able to get on uh, many of the the better trips and some of the not-so-good trips. But interesting to see countries like Vietnam and, you know, communist countries and go and, and try to do protection uh, for our, our uh, president in a communist country. And and uh, it always works out, thank God. But uh, it's, a, it's a lot different than being able to control police forces and and assets here in a, in a free country uh, than going over there and kind of begging the communist government to, to uh, understand the importance to make sure that sites and motorcade routes are secure for our president. Let me ask you, listen, let me go back to where you were traveling with President Clinton, and he was basically doing peace keeping missions towards the end of his presidency. What was that all about? Yeah. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Uh, it, it, re it really it really was a farewell tour. I mean, he knew, and if you ever hear any former president speak, what's the one thing they miss? They always talk about missing uh, being able to travel on Air Force One because okay. it is luxury abounds. I mean, it is the flying Taj Mahal. So uh, he realized that uh, soon on that he was going to be out of office and he wouldn't have that luxury. So he took uh, full advantage of it. And, of course, he wanted to say goodbye to all the leaders of these countries that he had such a great relationship with that helped us, that we worked together. Uh, so he, he went. He went. He went everywhere. Yeah. It, was, it was great. So uh, I tagged along. So it was great. Now, his, he, he's a pretty smart guy. Yeah, very smart. And, and he was probably setting himself up. He does a lot of stuff internationally. Yeah. He's a, uh, a global nonprofit. Yeah, the Clinton Nick, Foundation. Nickname was Slick Willie. So <laughs> yeah. Some of that was future preparation, I'm sure. But, yeah. But maybe it, not. It, 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 it all is. I mean, he again, he, he was a very intelligent, he is a very intelligent man. And uh, he probably was setting all that up for the future. And uh, now that's a multi-billion dollar uh, organization. So a lot of money they raise. Uh, so that's probably what he was doing. Now, the, there's a bond, I, I assume, that's created between Secret Service. And just so everybody knows, Secret Service, you're, you're the guy in the movies that's got the mic in his ear, that's keeping the president safe, that's on the scene while the president's on stage. 
you're the mean-looking guy in the movies. Uh, yeah, that's how they try to portray, portray. us. But uh, we come in all shapes, sizes, you know, male, female, races. Uh, it we're a very diverse group. Uh, and there's there's so many different uh, different positions and different uh, uh, ways to protect the president. So, yes, the people, the, the men and women who are surrounding the president, uh, we call them the shift. That's the the working shift. So it's uh, five to seven people in, at any given time, and they're they're on they're they're in very close proximity to uh, the president. But so many more people are out of that view and don't really get portrayed in the movies. They're they're behind the scenes. I mean, from our different specialized units, we have counter surveillance unit, we have counter assault teams, we have counter snipers, hmm. um, and then we have what we call post standers. Those are the people that we say, okay, you're going to stand here for 10 hours, make sure nobody gets through that door, make sure this, you're going to work the rope line, you're going to babysit the press. I mean, all there's so many different facets. And, and we could never secure these sites if it wasn't for our local counterparts. So we work very well with local and state counterparts when we fly into uh, a different city. Uh, we couldn't get it done without them because we're a very small agency. We're a little over 3,000 agents. Uh, to put it this way, there are more FBI agents stationed in New York City than there are Secret Service agents in the world. Wow. So we're a very small agency. So we really rely very very much on the locals to help us out. And that's why we have field offices all over the world. Because if the president decided he was going to fly to Houston, Texas tomorrow, first thing that his shift, the Presidential Protective Division, would do is they would reach out for the local office and say, hey, uh, next Tuesday, the president's going to come in town. He's coming to, in town for this. And we would automatically go out and get with our local counterparts, uh, go to all the sites he was visiting, and do an advance. Make sure when Air Force One landed, we had all our ducks in a row and there was a safe environment already created. So we need time to do that. I, the reason I went there is because I assume that there's an affinity that's between the president and is Secret Service people. Yes. Is that, is that true? It, it is. Uh, it is true. Uh, but it depends on what level and what position I was okay. talking about. Because uh, the Secret Service has a one-voice policy, meaning we can't, as a, say, a junior agent who just got to the president's detail, uh, if somebody asks us a question about how we do something, we don't speak. We mm -hmm. go and we refer that to our supervisors and our bosses. If the president asks us a question, uh, of course, if we know the answer, we will give the answer, but we don't ever uh, initiate the conversation. I mean, I've been in elevators alone with the president of the United States, and if he didn't initiate conversation, it wasn't my job because, you know, he's a busy man. A lot of times, and my recollection was he would be reading briefing papers, going down an elevator. He really wasn't there to talk to me. So it wasn't up to me to start conversation. Uh, unlike, you know, in our social networks, when you're in a situation where it's you and somebody else, you know, our politeness says, hey, say hello to somebody. Say, well, we're there to do a job and he's doing his job. And at this moment, uh, in particular, which I'm talking about, his job was to read that briefing paper in, in this case. So, But both uh, President Clinton and President uh, George W. Bush uh, they were very gracious. Uh, they really appreciated the work we did, and they would go out of their way to talk to us and joke with us. And so they were uh, they were pretty different off camera than when they were on camera. And uh, the relationship that they forged with every agent was was different. Uh, 
but uh, I always had a very cordial relationship with, with both of them. I've heard you mention a couple times in, in interviews uh, that you wanted, when you were deciding on a career early on, that you wanted to find a way to give back. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very important. Um, I was in business school in New York, uh, Pace University, and it was probably my sophomore year. And I said, you know what? I, I, I'm at this time, that that time, I wasn't really enjoying my classes, but I really started enjoying my history classes and my political science and my criminal justice classes. And I wondered what I could do with that. And so I started applying to different agencies. And, and I believe if you're working for uh, in a law enforcement position like the Secret Service is, you are giving back. Absolutely. You're helping protect people and, and facilities. But <clears throat> that is giving back to our country because if harm is done to our presidents, uh, that is never good for our country. I mean, we can go back in history and remember when John F. Kennedy was killed or, or even back when Lincoln was killed. Uh, the country never really recovered. It's an open wound forever. Uh, so I thought that would be a, a great way to give back, but I also thought, uh, selfishly, that it would be an incredibly uh, interesting career. And it was. It proved out to be a wonderful way to spend 25 years. So did that did that desire to give back start in college, or did that come from an early role model in your life, or where did yeah, that originate? Yeah, great, great question. Uh, my mentor has always been my father, uh, and my father started a business. Uh, he, well, he he his parents started a bar and grill in uh, in New Jersey, and when he was twenty two years old, he built that bar and grill into a huge catering hall, uh, three large rooms. People would have weddings and parties. Uh, and he really took a chance to, to do that. But in some ways he was giving back too, because if you, he was almost like the mayor, we used to call him the mayor, because if you ever saw him interact with his customers, with his patrons that would come in, um, you know, people always wanted to be around him and his name was George too. And, and, uh, he, he could just work a room like you can't believe. Uh, and then he, in his way of giving back, he uh, sat on the town council that uh, that in the town we lived in, and he it was very instrumental in pushing a lot of good things through for our town to make our town a better place. And uh, it's an unpaid position. He did it for about fifteen years, and always had to leave work to go to the meetings and and address the the the, the people of the town when they would have their their meetings. So, uh, yeah, I think it it runs deep in our family uh, and. Uh, I just, uh, I just knew I wanted to do something that could help others. Yeah, that's awesome. I love when our business people get involved with local government. Yeah. And, I mean, they do so much. Yeah. You think about charities and you think about government, period. Yeah. And the funding, the brain power, a lot of that comes from our local businesses and business owners. And it should, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, our local businesses should uh, get involved with... Uh, with our governments here because uh, they're the ones most affected. They're the ones that uh, generate tax revenue. Uh, but a lot of decisions made by the government affect the businesses, just like they affect all the citizens. So I think they should have a, a role in that, especially if they're the ones doing the hiring of the local people in the community. It's, it's all about giving back. And I know you and I both know Gordy Bunch very well, and there's a perfect example of of he owns a very large business in the woodlands and and uh, he sat on the woodlands council and and now is pretty much running the woodlands and and that's a a great way to 
for somebody who has that kind of mind that knows what it means to be responsible to put food on the table of so many people and then also understand what maybe an increase in taxes is going to do for the people and taking money out of the... So having somebody with a business mind uh, also working in government is a, is a great way for the government to, to see it from both sides. Uh, career politicians, uh, I've been around them a long time, and uh, I think all of them need to get back to the, the real world, uh, not just visiting their constituents, but actually uh, getting off the the pay of the government and going and having to earn a living, they would get a much better perspective of how difficult sometimes it is. Mm. And then if they want to go back into Congress, then they should. Let's talk about uh, George H.W. Bush. That was yes. your first assignment. Yeah, sure was. Can you tell me about what stands out about that first assignment or George H.W. Bush? Period? Yeah. So uh, as a, a brand new recruit out of the academy, uh, being able to, to work for uh, uh, them at the White House was just uh, just incredible. What really stood out was their their graciousness to us, their 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 true concern for us as as human beings, as people. Uh, I've done quite a few interviews with the local news and even Fox News Network. And uh, they always asked the same thing. And I said, they treated us like family. Mm -hmm. It really was. I mean, they were always concerned with, did you have enough to eat? Uh, did you sleep enough last night? I mean, you you would never, and especially that was so early in my career, I, I never was asked quite those questions, those personal, those were truly concerned about you instead of my job is to make sure you're okay. And they were just as equally concerned of how I was doing. How's your family? That kind of stuff. So just a, a wonderful family. And they were uh, very active uh, and they were very competitive. Uh, uh, Herbert Walker Bush uh, was a great horseshoe player and he was extremely competitive when it came down to that. And uh, he had a horseshoe pit built at the White House as well as up at Camp David. And when foreign leaders would come, he would he would challenge them to a horseshoe contest. And there's a there's a, a, a famous story. I didn't witness it firsthand, but uh, when Gorbachev came to the White House and he had never played horseshoes before, and his first horseshoe he ever threw was a ringer, and of course the place went crazy when he threw this ringer. And uh, a few hours later, they were down, uh, having a state dinner, and the president had that horseshoe that he threw a ringer with, he sent it out or had it brought out and they actually mounted it and he put a nice plaque there, your first horseshoe you ever. So it, it, it was just a, a, a great story that uh, he was uh, he was so competitive and then here's this guy who never threw a shoe before and he gets three points on his first shoe and, and he just made a big deal out of it. So great, uh, great gracious uh, hosts. They certainly were. And, and, he just passed away. Yeah. And I, I was blown away by the amount of people who were bringing up pastimes yeah. about how they, President uh, Herbert Walker Bush and Barbara Bush, touched their life. Yeah. Unreal. Letters popped oh, out with signatures, yeah. baseballs that were signed by them. Yeah. And it was so many people that, that I knew. I mean, they touched so many lives. Yeah, they, they really did. And it was uh, a wonderful send-off. Uh, as we know, uh, Mrs. Bush, his, his wife, died uh, in April, uh, so he wasn't long behind uh, her. 
but uh, but I, I've never heard, and I, I really mean this, other than you know the, the nasty people in the news and 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 you know stuff you see on nowadays on social media that uh, take one story and they they elaborate on what really happened and they criticize him for making a decision or stuff. But people who knew him, I never met anyone who did not like them, mm. who did not think they were just wonderful, genuine people. Uh, and they were, and they did touch so many lives. And uh, if, if anyone was groomed for the presidency, if anyone had a resume that said, this guy needs to be president of the United States, it was 41. He, I mean, from the the youngest naval aviator ever from the history mm-hmm. of the Navy, mm-hmm. uh, being shot down uh, while he was on, a, 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 I think, his 30th bombing mission, uh, his uh, his... A co-pilot and another person on board did not survive. And that that's the most amazing story of them all. I mean, he gave the command to bail out. They were hit with, with enemy uh, fire. Uh, he made the bombing run after anyway. Uh, then they bailed out and their plane crashed. And he was in a flotation device in a, in a raft. And he was praying. He was thinking about it. You know, he's in, the, I think it was the Sea of Japan. And there's nothing around. He's pretty much in enemy territory. And... Uh, he admittedly said, I weeped, I was crying, mm. and then off in a distance, he sees a submarine, a U.S. submarine pop out of the water. Now, what are the chances of that? And uh, they rescued him. They, they have video of it. They pulled him on the deck, and little did we know the person they pulled on the deck was going to be our 41st president of the United States. It was just amazing. And he was uh, ambassador to China. Uh, when China, you know, the relationship wasn't so great with them. I mean, director of the CIA. I mean, this guy, of course, vice president for President Reagan for eight years. Mm-hmm. This man had the resume to take us to the next level. He had a lot of experience. A lot of experience. Uh, even before that, then he went to Yale. He was a uh, uh, captain of the Yale baseball team, played yeah. in the first two college World Series. I mean, just... Uh, just, just an interesting man for he, sure. He was also one of the. Uh, he was our last president to have military combat experience. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, now it could be said that his son, uh, not it certainly wasn't combat, but he was in the Air National Guard for mm-hmm. Texas, and he flew, he flew jets for uh, for for Texas. But yes, you are correct. He was the last to have uh, any uh, any military uh, experience, especially combat. Yeah. So let me ask you. Between him and the other presidents, because you served under uh, President Clinton, you served under President uh, George W. Bush, and then right at the tail end, when Obama was on his campaign trail, yeah. you served to protect him. I did. Is there is there a difference in the executive action ability, if you will, the, the ability to make decisions between these presidents that you served around and under? You know, that's that's hard to tell, because I'll be, I'll be completely honest, I wasn't paying attention to uh, how they made their decisions at the time. Uh, I I was there for, I was privileged to be in in meetings when they were discussing things and, uh, you know, in vehicles with them when they were discussing very important things with with their staff or with with other members of Congress. And you hear the the behind-the-scenes stuff, and that's kind of an interesting way to get the story because then when you see it on the nightly news, it's completely different than what you you heard. Uh, So I I think more secondhand, um, you know, I read 
George W.'s book that, that he wrote after he got out of office. And it, it actually became more clear. Some of the stuff that I've witnessed when I was with him uh, working at the White House became more clear after I read his book, meaning, you know, we always think that, oh, the president did this, and especially the press. They love to criticize everyone, but especially a Republican president. They were very, very heavy on the criticism for him on uh, the, the decisions he made with the, the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, wars, and uh, but if you read his book called Decision Points, and he he titled it that way, and he wrote it that way, so people could understand why he made decisions, instead of the nightly news, you know, just lambasting him like, oh, this this decision cost us this, or this decision was bad because of this, and he was laying out the information he had at the time, and what he did with that information, who he spoke to to collaborate, whose opinion he got before he came out with an ultimate decision. Mm. And it, it he painstakingly uh, described every decision he made and why he made that decision. And those decisions may have been right or wrong, and that's for history to decide. But I just loved how he laid out that these weren't willy-nilly, yeah, let's go invade Iraq or let's go do that. Or when the surge happened, let's just do the surge. He he spent months thinking about that surge, okay. whether whether we should do it. And he ultimately decided to do it, and it was probably the turning point of that mm-hmm. uh, of that war. So, uh, I just loved how he laid it all out. Let me ask you about uh, President Clinton. You had a chance to work with him. Yeah. How was that in comparison to the other president, or anything stand out about President Clinton? No, I mean, uh, President Clinton uh, was the only uh, Democrat that I protected. Uh, full-time. Uh, other than the campaign, I, I was on President, uh, well, then candidate and then President-elect Obama's detail. Uh, so it's it's no secret that I'm uh, pretty conservative in my values. It doesn't change the way I did my job. I, you know, I was there to do a job and I certainly did it to the best of my ability. So uh, the, the person I was protecting, uh, their political beliefs had no interference in, in my political beliefs or how I did my job. But it was different hearing, again, those conversations, hearing him talking about things, giving speeches that were pretty much polar opposite of the way I view mm. things. But it, he was president. He was, he still had to go through the process and get it through Congress and get these things passed. Uh, but I, I, respect, I respect President Clinton very much. I did then. I do now. Uh, I respect all the presidents. And even if I disagreed with their politics... You can never take away that that person and that office is worthy of respect. Mm. Uh, what we're going through now with President Trump, I think it's a travesty that uh, every decision he makes is the wrong one, and the press really is just. Uh, you know, I heard something funny the other day. If if he if President Trump came up with the cure for cancer. They would criticize him for putting too many doctors out of work. Uh, I mean, th- that's how bad I think it's gotten. And it's really, this country has been completely politicized. And I think we need to get back to the middle and just understand we're all Americans and and go from there. Yeah, follow-up question is um, when public opinion turns, because public opinion has turned on most of our presidents where their approval rating has gone from 70% to 30%, mm-hmm. but especially Bill, uh, President Clinton. Um, when he was in office, there was a scandal, public opinion turn, there was impeachment threats mm-hmm. and all that. How does that change? I, 
I'm sure you have to compartmentalize emotions and, but how does that change your view if it does, or how do, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I don't think, um, I don't think it ever changed the way we viewed him. Uh, we could physically, uh, see that it was affecting him. Mm. Um, you know, cause again, it's one more thing to worry about. Uh, you know, he's, he's the leader of the free world and he's worrying about, you know, one, th- you know, am I going to be impeached? Is this coming out? You know, am I, uh, you know, am I going to be uh, brought up on perjury charges? All these things must have been going through his mind and you could see it taking a, a physical toll on him. And, and more importantly, it, Stuff like that takes away from the job at hand. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, he's leading the nation, and he has to do all these other things that are kind of, if you really think about them, they were his personal life. Now, he lied, uh, uh, which is really what the crime was. It wasn't that he had an affair with Monica Lewinsky. It was that he lied about it. And uh, so, But it, all in all, it took a toll on him, and he could tell that in some ways it... it uh, if it didn't affect his job, it certainly took time away from his job that he could have been uh, addressing more important issues than than that. Uh, I, I I think the same thing is happening to President Trump right now. I mean, so many things he has to answer, and and now they're threatening impeachment, and they're they're threatening all these other things, lawsuits, and as I heard somebody say the other day, he's he may be the first president when he gets out of office to be indicted and. I mean, again, it could be all um, talk and hot air, but uh, it's got to take a toll on him and take him away from his, the duties at hand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, our presidents really don't get the respect that they deserve. The office doesn't get the respect. The president doesn't get the respect that the office deserves, his yeah. position. Right. And that's changed. I mean, when that's I was it. growing up, uh, you know, the president was... Uh, you know, I hate using this word, uh, but king-like. I mean, he was the leader of this country and and the leader of the free world, and and it, it, he was he was worthy of a level of praise and respect because of the office he held. Again, politics aside, you may disagree with that person's politics, but that that is the person that is going overseas representing the people of the United States, and and for us to go as far as we have to the the point of disrespect mm-hmm. um, is alarming, and and I think we we need to get the respect back. Do you uh, remember a time where that shifted, where it was okay? I mean, it just did it did it happen at a point in time in in our various presidencies? I I think it's it's just a gradual thing, like it just ate away at okay. each one of these presidencies, mm-hmm. and if we push the envelope, what was news of of disrespect to the office of the president? back in the 70s or 80s was, wow, I can't believe that person disrespected the office of that way. Now that kind of stuff is old hat. That right. stuff is expected that the opposite party is going to feel that way or some of the uh, news shows that are anti whatever party it is are going to say that. So now they've taken it just so far. Now it's commonplace to to be disrespectful. Mm-hmm. And it it's almost like you get cheered on by your side if you're disrespectful to the other side. That, that shouldn't be. I mean, uh, you served in the military. You know it. That that person who sits in that chair with an R next to his name or a D next to his name is your commander-in-chief. Right. And they're making the decisions that affect you and your team's lives. Yeah. 
Uh, so the, the respect needs to be there. Let me ask you about um, President George W. Bush. Yeah. Anything happened? I mean, you went. You were protecting him. Mm-hmm. You were part of the Secret Service during 9-11. I was. Um, during the Iraq War, the Afghanistan mm-hmm. War. What what stands out from his presidency for you? Oh, boy. Uh, A lot, I assume? Yes. Uh, more his, uh, his demeanor, his steadfastness. I mean, I never saw the guy sweat. Uh, about anything. I mean, uh, he, he was an emotional guy. Don't get me wrong. I mean, and if you recall, uh, after uh, pretty much immediately after nine eleven, when he came on the air, and and uh, he was overcome with emotion, oh, rightfully yeah. so. Yeah. Uh, but he knew he had to be strong. He had to be strong in appearance on camera. Uh, he had to be strong in perception too. Uh, I don't know how much you know about the story, but. You know, this all happened in Sarasota, Florida, where Andy Card, who was his chief of staff, after he heard that the second plane had hit, he knew it at that point. We all knew it wasn't an accident anymore. When the first plane hit, there was some speculation it might be just a terrible, terrible accident. But once that second plane hit, he knew. And the president was reading school, school children's stories. And Andy Card leaned over and whispered in his ear, because uh, the president had already known the first tower was hit. And he said, uh, Mr. President, the second uh, plane just hit the second tower. We are under attack. Those are the only words he said. And then he pulled away. And if you look at that scene and his eyes, his eyes spoke the world. Because now, at that moment, he knew. You could tell that he just shifted from a peacetime president to a wartime president. And it was instantaneous. And he didn't panic. He waited until the teacher at the time was speaking and then he got up and he explained what was happening and that he had to excuse himself and this is the part of the story that I wanted to talk about so we quickly got him to Air Force One we took off with no plans we didn't know what we were doing we at the time we didn't know if that was just an initial stage of a much broader attack uh, what was going to happen next you know uh, There were all types of rumors that there were more planes in the sky that were supposed to attack other ones, Uh, like the one in Shanksville. uh, Most people will tell you that was either meant for the Capitol or the White House. Mm -hmm. So we didn't know what was happening. So until we could ground, meaning the U.S., the the government could ground all the planes, the commercial airliners in the sky, the Secret Service uh, said, we're not bringing him anywhere. We're keeping him in the sky. So all the planes started grounding, and then we switched, um, switched our thinking to bring them to basically an Air Force base where we have a bunker, uh, all the while him protesting. Not protesting that we were doing something wrong, but protesting that the optics on it of him being the leader of this country, he didn't want it to seem like he was hiding. Hmm. He wanted to get immediately back to the White House and address the people and let them know all it was fine, that we would get through this. And we delayed it for a while and... Uh, Finally, he he put his foot down and said, we, we will return to the White House now. And we did. Uh, but that that was it. That was him wanting to get on the camera, address it. And he gave that very famous speech. We were attacked by a faceless coward. Uh, and he knew that, okay, this, this is what we need to do. But I have to get in front of the people and let them know we'll get through this together. And I think that was, that was such a calming uh, moment that it really put the country at ease that, okay, uh, 
we have a president who is now in charge and he is going to uh, figure this out and we're going to get through this. So even the people that just six hours before were anti-Bush, really the country came together and it really surrounded him and, and we're all behind him uh, for, for that part of it. And that was a wonderful experience. I, on the other hand, was uh, on a temporary assignment. If you're on the president's detail, a lot of times they temp you out to different uh, satellites, they call them, that are underneath the president's detail. I was on his daughter Jenna's detail uh, here in Texas. She went to the University of, Austin, of uh, Texas in Austin. So I was on her detail when all that happened. So, uh, And, you know, we did what we had to do with her, again, not knowing if this was just an initial attack, if there's more to come, uh, the uncertainty was was there. You, you recall it. Yeah. And uh, we got her to an undisclosed location and kept her uh, hidden until we can um, uh, find out really what was going on. And more importantly, get the president, her father, to tell us what he wanted us to do with, with his two daughters. And uh, as we know, it was uh, just one day and those, those three attacks that happened those days. And... Uh, of course, they stayed in school, and uh, it took a long time, but this country healed, and, and we got on with our business mm. after that. But, yeah, I have uh, very strong recollections of, of that day and, and the weeks preceding. You think back in, in the history, especially the war history of our country, nothing like that has happened to our country. No. Nothing, no other president has had to handle something of that magnitude since— the Civil War. That is correct, yeah. To our country on our soil. Yep. Yeah, it was the only time, uh, you know, the Revolutionary War, you could say, but we weren't a country then. Right. Uh, we were fighting to become a country and the Civil War. Uh, War of 1812, of course, the, the British attacked us again. But other than that, that was the only time and the magnitude of that attack. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, if that was a test of his presidency, uh, I will say, I again, I'm was very close to it. I will say that he uh, he passed with five stars. Mm. He was magnificent. Well, thanks for sharing all that. Yeah. Because as you were talking about it, I remember where I was when yep. the towers were attacked. And sure. I was getting emotional just hearing you talk about it. Yeah. It's yeah. It's tough to even recall and, and everything that happened to our country. It, exactly right. And you know, on a on a personal note, I mean, I'm originally from New Jersey. Uh, which is right across the river from, from Manhattan. When I was stationed in the New York field office of the Secret Service, we were in Seven World Trade. So that's the uh, third building that collapsed. And more importantly, uh, my brother worked in Five World Trade Center hmm. at the time of the attacks, and I couldn't get in touch with him for most of the day. Uh, but I was able to find out through the grapevine that he was fine. He happened to be in a meeting up in Midtown, so he wasn't downtown when it happened. So uh, I just saw my brother this weekend, and we we talked a little bit about that day, and you know the the fear everyone had, and and uh, and luckily he wasn't even around the building. So I want to talk about just ask you as we wrap up on on that first chapter of your life, some of the greatest lessons learned while hmm. as a Secret Service agent. Yeah. Uh, th that, you know, I've, I've taken so much Have you? away from my time at the Secret Service and used it in my current world as an entrepreneur here. Uh, most of them is, uh, leadership, uh, learning how to be a leader. You know, some people, you always hear, well, you're a born leader. 
Well, some people are, but a lot of times there's certain uh, skills and traits that you have to develop over time that you, you may have been born uh, with those with some of those skills and traits, but you have to hone them. You have to make them better. You have to you have to learn how to apply them to the people you are leading, uh, because everyone isn't led the same way. Uh, there are people that get motivated uh, from you know just a pat on the back. I have some employees now, or some people when I was in the Secret Service that I was supervising that. You know, once every couple of weeks, if you just gave them a pat on the back and said, that was a great job, that case you did, or that assignment, or thank you for looking out, that's all they need. And they would produce for you for weeks, if not months, after that. There are some people that you'd have to be a little more heavy with. And, you know, uh, we used to say boot up the butt type thing. In the military, I know they, they refer to it similar, something similar to that. But if that's what motivates them, because they need it that way, Mm -hmm. well, then you have to do it that way for this person, and you have to assess, how am I going to motivate my entire team? One way of motivating them will not fit for all of them. You have to learn how to motivate each group or each person individually and uh, find out what works and go go with it. But always be appreciative for the work. Even the guy that needs to boot up the butt, you have to tell him you appreciate him or her as well. So... Any uh, leadership lessons that you experienced from any of the presidents that really stood out or qualities that help you as a leader? Um, you know, from, from the president's side, I always, I always remembered that you don't always have to have a retort. You don't always have to answer every accusation and every, uh, every comment made about you or your decisions or your when it gets personal, your family, some things it's best just letting letting them go. Uh, I always found that hard uh, to do, to just let things go when people would attack you or what you've done. Uh, but I learned that. I learned you have to. Uh, from a few of my bosses at the Secret Service, they were instrumental in making me a better boss and a better leader. Uh, one example in particular, and he happened to be the special agent charge of the president's detail, uh, he said something very interesting to me. He said, when you're in a meeting with all the other bosses and the special agent charge, of course, of that field officer or the, or the president's detail, they run that. that that's, their, that's their show. They're, they're the boss. They make the decisions. If you have a good boss, they'll bring you in a room and you'll have a meeting and you'll talk about a new policy or a new procedure they want to implement. And they'll get everyone's opinion on it. How can we do this? How can we implement it? How can we make it smooth? Uh, How will it work best? And they get your feedback on it. And you may differ with the special agent charge decision on how they want to do it. And that's your opportunity. He or she is giving you that opportunity to bring that up to see how you feel about it. And if you have a better way to do it, bring it up. So if you bring it up and you state your case, and I think we should do it this way, now, if you walk out of that meeting and your boss decided your way is not the way to go and they're going to do it a different way, when you walk out of that meeting, that is your way of doing it. You cannot walk out and go to your troops and say, yeah, you know, we're going to implement this. He wanted to, I wanted to do it this way, but he's doing it this way. You know, he's a, 
No, you're all together. You That policy is now everyone's policy. Mm. You have to support them. When you walk out, the way you sell it to your troops is, all right, this is the way we're doing it from now on. New policy is this. And when people complain, you're, you own that policy, and you have to make sure everyone owns it. Because the kiss of death is to say, yeah, I know it's a harebrained policy, but we got to do it anyway. Mm. That That's so ineffective. That shoots everyone in the foot. Yeah. And it's disrespectful and... Uh, not the way things get done. So that was one thing I learned early on, that uh, when the decision is made, even if it's not your idea, you're committed to the entire process, moving forward and making it the best process going. Uh, loyalty is basically the bottom line of that one. You have to be loyal to the people that you're assisting uh, to try to make the office or the division better. Fun question for you. How- Fun. How awesome was Air Force One? Tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about that. Air Force One was uh, it, it, incredible. I mean, it was, uh, I called it earlier, I called it the Flying Taj Mahal. It, it really was. Uh, so how it's broken down is when you come up the front steps, which is the steps you always, most of the time, see the president going up. The whole first third of that aircraft is the president's, other than the pilots are up on another level. Uh, there's a, a boardroom in there that he could have meetings. He has a, a resting quarters where he has two beds in there. He has a workout room. He has an office. Uh, so that whole first third of the aircraft is devoted to the president. And then the rest of the two-thirds pretty much goes in pecking order. So it's the president's staff. They have a whole section there. Uh, they have another meeting room, and they have very plush seats. And then you have the Secret Service and military. So anyone flying with the Secret Service or military are in that part. And then way in the back, you have the press. So that's that's how the pecking order went. Behind the engines? Behind the engines. Way behind the engines. Uh, and, you know, it's a 747, so you have the upper deck, too, which is mostly the crew running uh, the aircraft itself. And then you have uh, the cargo hold. And the cargo hold is not your typical. It is plush and nice, and it's where we would go down to, and we uh, after a long flight, we would... Uh, you know, vest up, put our bulletproof vests on and get changed and uh, pack up all our gear. If he was going from one event to the next, we might need a change of clothes or change of equipment. So we'd make sure that's all done. But, uh, but yeah, that was, that was quite an aircraft. And there's phones everywhere. There's TVs everywhere. All you do is pick up the phone. Uh, if you're traveling overseas or a long trip and you just tell them what movie you want on and they put the movie right on the screen. And, uh, I know that, that, uh, seems commonplace now but when i was on the detail in the the 90s i mean there there was none of that on commercial aircraft you know they if they had a movie it was one movie and everyone watched the same movie this one they could pick and choose and and it was great and the food was great and and uh very impressed with the air force and and the marine corps with marine one of course but uh, they would give everyone a card and it would say you know where you're going uh, the speed will be traveling pretty much. They they knew uh, what time you we are departing and what time we will arrive, and to the minute when if they said seven forty seven p.m. that that aircraft was chalked at seven forty seven p.m. It was quite amazing how they could do it. Tight schedule. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful right. aircraft. I've heard you talk about uh, the 10 criteria of being a great president before. Yeah. Is that something you studied in college, if I remember correctly? Yes. I was a history minor in college, and uh, the class I took was uh, History of the American Presidency. 
and uh, and I remember the professor uh, talking about to really judge a president, and we do it to this day. Who, you know, who's the greatest president that ever lived, and we kind of rank the presidents. Uh, but as a student of history, you have to have more criteria than you know. I lived through that presidency, and you know, Barack Obama is my favorite president because he's the only one I remember because I'm 28 years old. You, you have to use criteria and. There were a lot of criteria, but the 10 criteria uh, were the most important. And most of them were, you know, did they live through great times? Uh, here, here's the one that I use all the time, and I use it in my business now because it's, it's imperative. Did he surround himself with great men? And nowadays it's great men and women, but, and we still will say he. But because a president is a leader. They're, they're not there to make every decision and be an expert in everything they need to do. You have to hire the experts. You have to hire the experts that not only know about that, but that can, can communicate to you why we're doing something. Um, Environmental Protection Agency, that's just one. I mean, does the president have to be an expert in that? No, but you have to find an expert who knows about that. Um, you know, commerce, do you have to know everything? No, but you have to have somebody who knows about commerce and and that's the cabinet, and that's all those people. So those that one question was always the one that I thought was probably the most important. And you use that in your business. Anything else that you use today in your business from that criteria list? Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think that is the... Because being a leader is about managing people to a point where you give them the ability to make decisions on your behalf. And I say that because I I have an incredible staff at South River Range, incredible staff. And my operations, uh, my, my uh, operations manager, uh, former uh, gunny sergeant in the Marine Corps, but uh, the ability for him to make decisions is directly related to how much authority I give him to make decisions. And he has made incredible decisions. Whether I was present or he made them without me uh, being present, he always briefs me on them. But there were certain times that I, there was a problem that needed to be solved. Uh, I wanted him to solve it. I didn't necessarily agree with the way he was solving it, but I let him solve it let his it way. Out. I let him because I want I wanted him to the other managers to be the person who had the authority to make those decisions. And if it wasn't the greatest decision and we made a mistake on his decision, we learned from that mistake. You have to you have to learn from your mistakes. But for me to, uh, for lack of a better word, overrule his decision, I think would have been detrimental to morale of everyone, his morale, and maybe made him gun shy on dis- making decisions in the future. Uh, as long as it wasn't going to cost us money or be, uh, you know, a, a real bad decision, I, I let those decisions play out that others make. Um, now, uh, there are certain things that if we are, if he's making a decision not based on good information, meaning he didn't know maybe the financial side of it and what I have working on the financial side, and he was making a decision based on um, what would be right for the store or the range, well, then I would bring him to the side and I would talk to him. But I would still let him make that decision and and broadcast that to the staff. I think it's very important for him to be uh, looked upon as the leader of the uh, operation side of the house. 
because, uh, again, I can't be there every second of the day, and I don't want to uh, circumvent his authority. Awesome. Let me ask you, since you are a history buff, yeah, give me one other person from history. Uh-huh. Doesn't have to be a president, unless you want it to be, that you admire, and tell, tell me why. Uh, it probably will be a president. Uh, uh, I would say Abraham Lincoln. Uh, boy, he his four years as a president uh, were just the entire time was war. And it wasn't just war as we know it. It was, as you know, we talked about a little bit, it was the only civil war we ever had. It was brother against brother. And uh, the, the history books, I don't think, do it justice of the pressure that that man was under. Uh, he, more than anyone, wanted that war to end. Um, and, uh, I mean, there were stories that he used to sleep like two hours a night because he was always up. He was always at the telegraph office getting word from the battlefields what had happened. Uh, but I just think, as, as far as a leader goes, uh, and as far as somebody who lived through great times, uh, great in a sense, not in a... They were wonderful times. They were very dark times for our country, but uh, he, he had convictions, he knew what was right, and he pressed on with it, and, you know, in some ways his hand was forced uh, to, to start the war, uh, but it, uh, it played out, and he pretty much gave his life for everything that happened. Uh, great man, I thought, great leader, uh, you know, uh, all that's happening now with uh, the views of the Confederacy can't we can't remember the Confederacy and we can't honor the generals and all this stuff. That's hogwash. I mean, uh, again, the, the the Confederacy was more about the honor and pride of the South, uh, and it is a part of our history, and we just can't can't rewrite history books and we can't rip down statues because it is part of our of who we are you, you whatever side you're on about the civil war there's people from the south that are still reliving the civil war and uh but no matter how you slice it it's part of our history good or bad everything is part of our history we can't go back and rewrite things because in today's society it's it's not popular or it's or it's considered rude or it's considered racism or it's Say what you want in the lens of viewing it from now to the history, but it still occurred. We can't just shut, put our head in the sand and say this never occurred and, and we don't want these things in our history books anymore. We have to report it. Uh, we have to know what our history is and we have to learn from it and, and move on from there. It's That's very important. important. Very important. Can't learn from it if we don't know what it is. Yeah. And you're bound to repeat it if you don't learn from it. Yeah. Um, so. Awesome. Okay, let's let's transition to business. Yeah. So after 25 years of, of Secret Service, you decided to become an entrepreneur. And I always, uh, what I'm curious about is you had, I, I would assume you had some security. You were working for the government, high-profile position. They really needed you. You had a steady paycheck, as far as I know. Um, and then you decided to start a business that was very capital-intensive, mm -hmm. a lot of money, went into your, your gun range yeah, and, uh, you made that transition. How did you, how did you get the courage to do that? Ha, huh. uh, you know, I, I surrounded myself with great people. Did you? Uh, I have some, uh, great partners, 
uh, in the range. Uh, they're, uh, they don't, none of them have an active role, uh, but we discuss the business regularly and how's it going, and, and they offer assistance. They're all uh, businessmen. There's some accountants uh, that help with, with that end of it. Uh, so, and then my support mechanism at home. I mean, I have a wonderful wife who is encouraging through the whole thing. You know, when it, when I first told her what I wanted to do, she kind of looked at me like I was crazy. Uh, when I told her how much it might cost to start this thing and, you know, she always envisioned because I always told her, uh, 99% of the time when a secret service agent retires, they go into corporate world and do corporate security, uh, here in Houston, it would have been for an oil company or an energy company. Uh, and that's what I thought I was going to do right up until about two years before retirement. And I did some soul searching and I said, well, what do I, what can I give back? What did I learn after 25 years that I can, uh, let others share in and hopefully it becomes profitable. I mean, everyone starts a business to, to, to make a profit and have a good living at some point. Uh, so I really loved being an instructor at our academy. So I said, well, maybe I could take some of the stuff that I used to teach to our recruits and our agents and bring it to the civilian side. Uh, of course, not giving away any secrets or anything like that, but there's a lot of stuff that I learned and then I became an instructor on that, uh, I think would be very beneficial to people on how to protect themselves, how to protect them, fa their families. And, uh, I did a lot of research on it. Uh, and what I came up with is there is a market for that, but I would have been a dime a dozen. I mean, there were plenty of other Secret Service agents already doing it, FB, retired FBI people, uh, special forces people that have training academies. So it, it, uh, it, it was a crowded field. So at that time, I started doing some research, and there was a lot of these higher-end ranges popping up across the country. Scottsdale Gun Club was the first one that popped up. And uh, more or less, it brought the shooting experience into a, a comfortable setting. Uh, where I learned how to shoot when I was much younger uh, was dark, dingy, you know, just not well lit, you know, smelt like smoke, you go shoot your gun. And uh, somebody realized that if you make it nice and attractive and clean, you could attract a lot more people to it. Uh, and... Uh, I started going, uh, started traveling around the country, visiting different places that were opening up. It was brand new. I think there was only about 12 at the time. And I visited pretty much all of them and uh, took a little bit of ideas from each one of them. Some of them had archery in it. Some of them had restaurants or cafes in it. Uh, some of them had full retail stores. Some of them had gunsmith shops. Some of them had simulators. So I brought what I thought could work for the demographics here. I took all those little pieces, put them together. And we came up with the concept of Saddle River Range, uh, where we do a lot of training. So that's part of the, the passion I had. Uh, but we also have the shooting aspect. Uh, we did put the gunsmith in there and the archery we have in there. And a lot of people come out for uh, special events, like tis the season. Now people are having their holiday parties with us, uh, team building exercises. We have different levels of membership. Uh, so if you're a frequent shooter... Uh, you pay a membership fee, and then you don't have to pay every time you come in. You shoot for free, and you get some benefits uh, in addition to the free shooting. So it worked out pretty well. But there were many hurdles to cross, and I had a great support system that helped me cross them and a lot of uh, partners that, that helped me with the, the ideas and, of course, the, 
the, the money flow and, uh, and the small business administration helped out too. How do you love what you're doing? Or I love do you, it. You love, love it. it. I'm there every day. Uh, you know, there, there's stress involved though. Uh, you know, I have over 50 employees and 50 people that are counting on me to sign the front of the paycheck so they can sign the back of them. Uh, that's, that's a huge responsibility and I take it very serious and, you know, we're, we're doing great. Uh, we, uh, I've never missed a payroll, so everyone's happy and, uh, and I get so many compliments on my staff. I have the best staff going. Uh, people seek me out just to tell me a story that one of my, one of my team did for them or how they helped them or how polite they were. Uh, can't, can't have it any better than that. Ultimately, you're setting that culture. I'm, I'm trying to, yes. How do you do that? Uh, uh, by leading and by teaching the other leaders, the managers, uh, what I expect. And I don't expect anything of them that I don't expect of my managers, nor should they expect of me. It's all about uh, how you treat people. And, you know, getting back to the Secret Service and that culture, Secret Service was law enforcement. And, you know, in this world of the past two or three years of you know, blue lives matter and black lives matter and cops are bad and NFL players kneeling and protest of police brutality. And, and I get it. Uh, but law enforcement is a very difficult job and you're dealing with a lot of bad people and the, they have to be tough and you have to maybe not be the most polite person in the world when you're dealing with somebody that is that murder suspect or, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, it might be uh, a very dangerous person or a gang member. I mean, there's certain ways to do that. Secret Service was no different. There were times I was dealing with very dangerous people, very bad people. But you have to differentiate between who those people are. So vast majority of my job was dealing with the staff of the president or the staff of a head of state that you had to negotiate. And, and I parlay that into how we conduct our customer service at, at Saddle River Range. It's you, you have to treat people with respect when, and it's the same thing. What, what do I want from my customers here? I want them to have a great time. I want them to enjoy Saddle River Range and I want them to come back. What did I want there? I wanted to keep their protectee or our protectee safe. I wanted to, uh, make their experience if they were coming from another country, their visit to the United States, very comfortable and an enjoyable time. But I needed to get things done and I needed to get things done by you giving me information and me telling you what we can do, what we can't do and what I advise we never try to do. So I couldn't have gotten that without a relationship with those people. So now we move it to a business sense. Now I have relationships with my customers and I make sure my team has relationships with our customers, and that's how you get everything done. I mean, you just got to really work with people and understand where they're coming from. And when you have complaints, okay, if somebody says, well, you did this, or well, you have to take them serious. And you explain to them why we do certain things. You're, you're going on a shooting range. A lot of bad can happen if you don't know what you're doing and you don't know the safety rules. Uh, so if you see somebody, this is what I train my range safety officers, if you see somebody doing something wrong, which potentially could be unsafe, be, be firm but polite. 
go up because nine times they're not doing it because they want to be unsafe. They may be new to the gun shooting world and just may not know. So be firm but polite and just correct them on how to do that. Uh, now, if it's a blatant safety violation, you're whirling the gun around pointing at other people, then you be more firm than polite. You have to, but you have to assess mm -hmm. the situation before you do it. And most PE, even if that customer may not be so happy with how we treated them or how firm we were with that major safety infraction, the people shooting around them are very happy that you address that issue very firmly and very quickly because uh, they potentially could be at danger as well. So again, it all comes back to how you treat people. And uh, we try very hard to make sure that we are at the top of the pyramid when it comes to customer service. I heard Saddle River Range was nicknamed a Guntry Club. Yeah, that's a uh, tell. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, that that was actually before us, but they've lumped us into that category. It was a, a range. Uh, uh, it was Frisco Gun Club in Frisco, Texas, uh, which was built maybe five or six years ago. And I went up there for uh, two or three times for their opening and all. And uh, I can't remember who it was, but they wrote an article and they called it a Guntry Club, and that stuck for all of the, the country clubs the, that have uh, popped up uh, since Frisco. So, and now there's quite a few of them in the country. I think we're, we're uh, closing in on about 50 or 60 that are like Saddle River, just very comfortable places to shoot. So it's getting out there. It's getting popular. Uh, and the, the beauty is we don't charge any more than a, 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 another range that doesn't have the amenities, isn't as clean, doesn't have the million-dollar air system that gets all those pollutants out of the air. Um, that's very important when you're shooting in an indoor range. The air has to flow at uh, certain linear feet per minute to make sure you're not breathing that stuff and that you uh, are getting the air back in. So we use a 100% fresh air system to get back in there. So every time you step in there, you're breathing fresh air. Um, that's important because that's a, we talk about safety with the guns, but that's a health issue. So other than being complimented on our team members, the next best compliment I ever get is when people come up to me and say, I don't even smell smoke in there. And that's by design. Uh, you don't smell smoke because there, we whisk it away from the shooter's respiratory zone so fast and get it out of the building. There's no chance of smelling smoke. Now, you were doing some research on first-time gun purchasers, if I remember correctly, and you found out something interesting about the demographics. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, uh, not the majority, but very high up there is lady shooters. Okay. Uh, lady uh, first-time gun purchases by ladies is in the 40% so of all the guns, which is great because when people think of guns, they always used to think of, you know, oh, it's just a man's sport of shooting guns and only men carry guns. Um, we teach the license to carry, the Texas license to carry. And I'll tell you, just about the same statistic, 40, 40 to 45% of first-time gun purchases are ladies. About 40% of our students in those classes are ladies. Uh, ladies are starting to uh, take their self-defense or personal defense a lot more serious and thankfully they're doing it and saying i want to be trained i just don't want to go out and buy a gun and never have shot a gun i want to know how to use the gun god forbid i ever needed to use it so uh that's very encouraging and we offer many different classes uh basic handgun class we offer uh, private instruction where 
Uh, if you're more comfortable in a one-on-one setting or a two-on-one setting, uh, we can do that for you. Where it's just you and the instructor, and of course, we start every class with safety and how to grip the gun and um, how to uh, line the sights up, and then we take you out on the range. So we try to make it uh, less intimidating for people, and we try very hard. And your instructors are top-notch. They're experienced, huh? They're all former military, former law enforcement. Uh, we even have our, our newest instructor. She's awesome. Her name is Athena Lee. She's a professional shooter. Uh, she was in that uh, that show, uh, uh, Top 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 Gun. Top Gear. Top Top Gun. I think it was. Okay. I never saw it, but uh, I did some research on her, and she was one of the competitors, and she won it one year. But uh, she lives in the area now, and uh, what her specialty, what she likes the the most is to teach other ladies. So the first class we ever taught, we uh, she ever taught, we advertised as ladies only, basic handgun class, and it sold out in three days. It was incredible. And uh, and some ladies feel more comfortable being taught by a female instructor. So we, uh, if if that's the case, we, we would like to fill that niche. And uh, as, as long as the students get a lot out of it, which they did, they they love the class, That's that's the way to go. Um, I've seen you on a couple news outlets, KPRC 2, Channel 13, weighing on, you, you go in on a, as a guest and you mm-hmm. weigh in on what to do when chaos ensues right? and how to handle Craigslist transactions. I heard you talking about that once and then survival tips at big events, maybe if there's an active shooter or something like that. But what I, what I realize, and it goes back to what you said is you love teaching people. Yeah. Why do you think, why is that? Why do you like teaching people? Y- you know, it's. It's helping people, yeah. uh, you know, uh, being a Secret Service agent, yes, they were paying me to do what I was doing, but the long and short of it, I was helping people. I was helping the people I was protecting. I was helping our country, I would like to think, uh, and that's a good feeling, uh, you know, because, again, God forbid something ever happened to one of our protectees uh, on my watch, it probably would not be... Uh, probably keep me awake at night. So again, giving back, if I have that knowledge base of how to protect people, how to protect sites, how to protect your home, what to do in case of an active shooter. And, uh, you know, one of them, one of the news shows came out after the Orlando shooting about a year and a half ago. And uh, we went over some scenarios of an active shooter and what to do. Uh, in that case, of course, uh, guns weren't allowed in there. So if even if you had your license to carry, if you had a gun in there, you were technically in violation of the law. So uh, that's what these active shooters look for. 98% of the time, active shooters do their work in uh, gun-free zones because they know they're the only gun in there. So, so if that's the case and you're in there and you're on the dance floor dancing, what do you do? So I gave some uh, what I thought were pretty good tips to, uh, to, to the general public that if this happens and you understand what's going on, you've assessed, then you need to take certain steps to get yourself out of harm's way. Uh, you know, there's a lot of dead heroes out there and a lot of people think, well, I would do this and I would do that. And God bless you. I, 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 you know, we always wish there was somebody there that could have taken action early on to, to prevent some of that, some of the killing that went on. But 
you can't do that if you know you're the first one that is a casualty there so you have to find an advantageous point of cover you have to in some ways hide i know everyone hates that word because it makes you you know makes people think well i'm no coward i'm not going to hide you you have to hide until you can assess what's going on mm. if he's got all these guns uh and you have nothing then you have to go and hiding mm. could be going to a place to look for a place to hide, but also searching for what you could potentially use as a weapon. Because if you are discovered, how are you going to defend yourself? And the last thing is always fighting. You have to fight. If you are discovered and you can't escape, you have to fight like your life depends on it, because it does. Uh, With anything you have. Um, It's a a sad case, but, uh, you know, you don't want to be the one hiding under a table and these people are just indiscriminately shooting people. Well, I saw Saddle River Range as it was being built. Yeah. The place is absolutely gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, just, just driving by it, it mm-hmm. looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, but also, you, it's pretty innovative. Yeah. You guys have a cafe in there. Yeah. You guys have a, a retail store where you actually sell guns. You mm-hmm. rent guns. You have a bow range. You have a gunsmith. Yeah. You, it's a two-story it uh, is. facility. Yeah. You guys have a, a, a private... What's Crockett Club? Yeah, we call it Club Crockett. Okay. Uh, that's the only private uh, portion of the building. So our Club Crockett members have private uh, parking in the back, private entrance in the back. Uh, if they never want to go out to the public side, no one will even know they're there. Uh, we have some professional athletes and some you know, uh, high roller people, if you will, that don't maybe want people to know they're shooters or that they like guns. So they come in the back door. They have their own private range. They shoot on the range. They bring their family in. They have lunch. We bring them lunch from the cafe. Uh, We've even gone so far, if somebody was looking at certain guns, we'd bring the guns to them so they don't have to even go out in the showroom. Um, Again, some people, people would recognize these professional athletes. So uh, they don't, they don't want to be labeled, especially in the news nowadays. You know, uh, there's, so many people who who think the gun is the problem instead of the hearts of people who use these guns, like the active shooter we were talking about. Uh, so they don't they don't want to be labeled. So uh, we could uh, do it very privately for them, and they really seem to like that. Uh, the gunsmith shop has been great. Uh, we could build guns for people. We could make custom builds. We could fix guns, old guns, new guns, guns that aren't working properly. Um, if you buy a gun from us, we'll do that for life. If it's not uh, functioning the way it's supposed to be, uh, and you bought that gun from us, we will make sure. If even if it comes down that we have to send it back to this to manufacturer, we'll do that all for you. Uh, we now have five gunsmiths, so we're uh, getting through the backlog. We had a long backlog at one point, so we're getting through the backlog and turning around people's guns pretty quickly. Our cafe is is magnificent. People come in to just eat the food. Uh, it's kind of strange. You own a gun range and people come in and no, I'm not going to shoot. I just had your sandwich this weekend and I loved it and I'm coming back for more. Uh, the archery has been an instrumental part to the point where the upstairs now is all archery. We had to move them from downstairs to upstairs. So they had more room to expand. We have two big archery bays. And the other big thing, like I mentioned before, is the events. Uh, a lot of parties, a lot of team building, a lot of kids' birthday parties, uh, you know, sometimes they come in depending on the age, and the parents don't want to go on the shooting range. So we do the archery. We have archery tag. Uh, archery tag is basically, it was like dodgeball when we were kids, where uh, you're shooting the other team with bow and arrow, hmm. but the arrow has a foam tip on it, so no one gets hurt. Uh, 
and we could have balloon shoots. We just make it very fun for whatever the age group is. Very cool. Yeah. Let me ask you as we wrap up, um, what advice do you have for people who are wanting to start a business, who may be kind of on the edge? Yeah. What advice would you give people? Don't get discouraged. Uh, If you have a great idea, you are going to have a lot of naysayers. Uh, Some of those naysayers may be very close to you, family, friends, um, you know, kind of, you know, why would you want to do it? You're you're crazy. That's going to cost too much money. And if if it's a great idea and you are confident that it could, it's something this area needs, uh, go for it, go for it. Uh, you know, it, it may not be smooth from the, from the get-go. You know, every business has its hiccups. Every business has a certain amount of time before it gets profitable. But, you know, be, be in charge of your own destiny. Just grasp it and go for it. Seize the day. Chase, chase your dreams. Chase your dreams. Uh, you know, dreams uh, dreams only sometimes come up once, and you, you got to have the right timing, and and uh, everything has to fall into place. But if if you're willing to do the hard work, uh, and surround yourself with great people, when I was uh, thinking about building a place like what Saddle River turned out to be, I did a lot of research on air handling systems and everything else. And one thing I did is I latched on to a developer who that's all he does is develop these types of ranges around the country now when i met him he only had two under his belt so we were his third one now i think he's got 10 or 15 under his belt uh but stuff i didn't know about he was able to give me advice and how to proceed even stuff that wasn't range related just financial you know go to the sba go to the small business administration you know i could hook you up with a guy who knows how to do that stuff those people that can give you advice make your life easier. And uh, again, you don't have to be an expert on everything, but if you have the right people in your corner that can help you with things, financial people and developers and zoning and planning, uh, makes your life so much easier. Attorneys, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and you take the good advice and you discard the bad advice and you don't let anyone discourage you and you move on and you put your nose to it. And uh, My grandfather had a saying, siempre uh, avante. That means always ahead. You're always looking ahead. You never look back. So I take this Sempravante approach. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you. Is there anything that we that, that we missed that you want to talk about? No. Uh, other we... than we have a great community here. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we at Saddle River Range uh, are always trying to take care of our vets. Uh, pretty much everyone who works on the range side of it, uh, helping out the shooters and they're all vets, and uh, uh, I'd, I'll have it no other way. Uh, they're, they've given more for this country uh, than, than anyone here, and uh, they bring a skill set that is great for me, but I like to think that I'm helping them out too. Uh, four or five of them, it was their first job. Once they got out of the, the military, it was their first job. And uh, a lot of them tell me how thankful they are that I gave them the opportunity, but I'm the one that's thankful for their service and what they do for me now. So support your military. SaddleRiverRange.com, is that yes. correct? Yep. And then on, on Facebook, it's... Facebook, Saddle River Range. Awesome. And uh, we're on Twitter and Instagram, and we just hit our 10,000th uh, 10, follower on, on uh, Facebook. So wow. we're happy about that. 
only being open three years. We're, Some happy we're real customers, happy. absolutely. Yeah, especially because Facebook is not real pro-gun, so they don't allow us to boost things and advertise. So to get uh, 10,000 followers organically is, is quite an accomplishment. We're, we're very happy. Well, I want to also say thanks for all you do in the community, your leadership, and your service. 25 years protecting our president, man, that's a yeah. big deal. Yeah, I appreciate that, Terry. And you're and you're one of our keynote speakers. Yeah. So thank I'm you. Looking forward to that. Thank you for serving. Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you, Terry. Our mission for this podcast is to bring you stories about veterans, entrepreneurs, and leaders who are doing fascinating things with their lives. Our hope is to inspire you because we believe that inspired individuals will change lives, both theirs and others for the good. Bell Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're asking for your support. There are two ways to do that. One, by getting involved with our mission, and two, by contributing financially. Please visit bellinstitute.org, that's V-E-L institute.org, to help us make an impact.